That's the reason we wrote this book. Hi, this is Aga and Łukasz, and this is Catching the Next Wave podcast, where we discuss the future of design and much more. started with Catching the Next Wave three years and 95 episodes ago. Our very first guest was Rudy Jansen, a great friend who was willing to invest a couple of hours of his life to get us material for our very first season. We could not not have him in our 10 seasons, right? <laughs> back then, Rudy was, a, well, he still is obviously, but uh, back then he was a co-author of one book called Event Design and also a co-creator of the worldwide certification program for event designers with a very impressive number of graduates. Now he is a co-author of two books written in the very same company with Rolf Friesen and Dennis Lauer. The second book is titled Design to Change, but Design to Change is not just a book, is it? It's more like a holistic educational experience aiming to make you dare to face the transformation that's ahead of you. But we are not here to talk about the daring, which was the theme of the last season, but we are here to head into some rabbit holes. Ruth, so great to have you with us today and thank you for believing in this project from the very beginning. It's a treat to see these 95 waves <laughs> cascade across the audio spectrum. It's a treat and I uh, really like how you guys have uh, put that together. So. Thank you for the opportunity of joining you again and hanging out on your Dutch uh, sofa together with you. <laughs> this is really a treat. You know, it feels like we're back together, although we have two black holes in between us and an event horizon because we are far enough from the campfire not to be in 3D mode, which uh, we have been in the past. Yes. Thank you for this opportunity. Like you said, we sat around the campfire some time ago and when you sent a picture today, I realized it was probably 2018 or 2019 when 18. we lost, yeah, when we last saw each other in a physical form rather than the virtual form. How have you been between 2018, 19, and now? Because we had this whole pandemic situation that hit us and uh, kind of stopped us from having a chance to meet and to chat. Yeah. Well, just like most of us, I've been grounded, right? So uh, <laughs> I've been stuck in my rabbit hole here in uh, in Switzerland. It's, it's a rabbit hole that is really good to be in because, like you said, it gave us an opportunity when 80 travel days were scratched out of the agenda last March. It gave us the ability to take our procrastination of not writing all the learnings from all the conversations <laughs> we had around event design, which were stuck in our heads for quite some time, fermenting like a good kimchi. But they ended up becoming our motive to have raw conversations amongst each other, which we then, like you said, you know, I'd never heard it being called like an educational experience yet, the design to change. Uh, but it's our best attempt at extracting learnings from all the conversations we've had around event design and around change and how events are markers of change and to take the time to literally think deeply about some of these experiences and to crack the 
maybe not the code, but to crack the patterns that we've been seeing over time, uh, over the last seven years, that is between the event design handbook, which is all about the process of systematically designing innovative events using a very systematic methodology, which has developed into a community of practice of people that are super geeky about it. But we also realize that if we equip them with the skill of being able to master a process and apply it really effectively, we also manage to alienate them from some of the people that are looking for the outcomes of the process. Because if you're just geeky about a process and want to buy a process, sometimes you forget about the fact that others don't care at all <laughs> about the process. You could spend six days at the bottom of the ocean thinking about possible prototypes and come back up or take a group of seven people through a systematic design process of you know five or six sprints and come out the other end with three prototypes. At the end of the day, for the event owner or for the person that's looking for the change to be delivered, sometimes they couldn't care less. <laughs> and that's really hard to digest for the people that we've geeked out on process to accept that just because you master a process doesn't give you permission to use it or to even have others take it seriously. Hmm. So how these two books or the way you think, how this connects? Because if you just had the purpose and no way to approach constructing the, the event or experience or whatever, that wouldn't work either. So are they now complementary? You're touching our pain point here, which is when we presented this second book called Design to Change, which on the front cover has a triangle, the triangle representing the delta, the delta representing change, and not the delta variant that now everybody knows. So it's all a question of time and timing. The first book came out in 2016, but when we presented the second book, we said, this book is not a prequel or a sequel, it's an equal. Mm. An equal meaning Event Design Handbook has a circle on the front and is really the process, it's really the journey you go through to design an event collaboratively with a team of people using a very systematic methodology. So that's the language. And if you're equipped with the language and you know the language, like you know when you travel to the Netherlands for the first time, language is one thing, but being able to apply the language is a second thing. So if one book is the language, the other book is the conversation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one doesn't equal out the other because people, you know, learn in different ways or at different preferences. I've learned a lot of my languages in conversation because I didn't have a choice. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I was parachuted into France at the age of eight in a world without internet, going to my whatever CMA class at the local lycée in Normandy equipped with the words we know and three other words I can't say because they would be bleeped out into an explicit version. <laughs> um, but that's what you get equipped with. And then you start, you just have to go and do it and you learn in conversation, right? So I think conversation is a really great way of learning, but it's also not the easiest way of learning because it can be quite painful. A process can be very nice, but it can also be like very tiresome, right? I learned German at a much later age. And now I have to learn a, a dialect of German living in Switzerland, which is very close to my dialect from the south of the Netherlands. And because they are so similar as a language or maybe as a dialect, I find it really hard to distinguish which one is which. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> my head cannot decipher, you know, was that a word from that dialect I learned as a kid, you know, with my parents? Or is that the dialect that I'm supposed to speak living in Basel Landschaft here in Switzerland? When I'm talking to my hairdresser just now, 
about her experiences of COVID, for instance, right? I mean, you can be equipped with a language and it can be perfectly useless if you don't apply it in conversation. So we also feel that the first book is a really good book because it's very clear and it's very applicable. It's very systematic to apply. But it's worth nothing if you're not able to have the conversation based on it. And the second book you can use also without the first book because having conversations with outcome-driven people or understanding the difference between process and outcome or wants and needs or understanding what it takes to have a good conversation, I think those are universal truths that we all need to be equipped with to function properly and to get stuff done. So what is needed to have a good conversation? I think it's different in, in any type of circumstances, right? So the first most important thing is probably understanding the context in which you're having it. So we start off this book with a chapter that's called, you know, the horizons of change. We've enlisted the help of our trusted advisor, Paul Wilkins, who's an executive babysitter and stand-up comedian, <laughs> who for a long time in corporate world has worked and looks at that executive perspective in a very specific way. As he says, you know, there's method to the madness, but what we're trying to do is how do you have a conversation to enable you to look and act beyond the now, mm -hmm. right? Because the conversation happens in the now, but it intends something in the future. So it's in perspective of time. So good conversations are based on practice, but also based on understanding who you're speaking with. And those require some very specific practices like a common language, that can be very helpful, right? <laughs> and I also dare to contest that you don't necessarily require language to have a conversation. You're both scuba divers. You can be underwater for an hour with a buddy from another part of the planet not mastering the same language. But underwater, you know how to rely, rely on each other mm -hmm. because you have a sense of observation of each other's behaviors, which is basically the most essential part of understanding somebody's basic needs or you know, functional needs or emotional needs or social needs. All you need is bubbles. You don't really need words either. So it's, <laughs> it's very contested whether a language is required to have a conversation. Yeah. I would like to circle back to something that you said before, which was that events are markers of change. Could you elaborate yeah. a little bit on what you mean by this? In one of your previous episodes, I think you addressed the fact that there's thresholds to being able to create change of some sort. Things can hold you back. You need to dare beyond your comfort zone in order to experience a moment of pain, which can lead to a transformation or a change. But when we use those kinds of words in regards to events or when people are thinking about change, the words themselves are so loaded with beliefs that they get in the way of what it does. So one of the things that we think is that if you look in the recent past of an organization or of a country or of whatever it might be, you can probably mark moments of change, pivotal moments that have happened in the past. And in hindsight, you can identify that those events have been instrumental at creating some kind of change because a certain set of people got together, right? We like to call them stakeholders. They hold a stake of the event. Their behaviors at the event from entry to exit have created something within the short time frame of that event. But as a result of the gap between the events, 
change happens between the events pretty significantly too, right? It's almost like if you would take a, a microscope and look at the music of whether it's Chopin or Miles Davis, doesn't really matter. But it's the space between the notes that creates the music. So if you imagine the events to be the, the black dots and dashes on the paper, and you imagine the time between the notes to be the space between the events, that's how we see the most pivotal moments. So show me any organization's event and I'll tell you about their culture. It's one of the things that we truly believe in. If mm -hmm. you spend a day, or if today is the last day of the Wikimania experience, for instance, 2021, with all the Wikipedians getting together across the planet, for 15 years, they've had events live in different places across the globe. And this last year, they were supposed to get together in Bangkok. Now, that didn't happen. And for a year and a half, the event was postponed without really giving it a, a home or giving it a, a function, right? So it was kind of up in the air moment, and the decision was not taken on what to do. So a community of people that care about bringing free knowledge to the world in the most balanced way possible, were unable to do a number of the things they normally do on a regular cadence of once per year getting together and doing something. And that started to show really like six months after the event did not take place. Right, so if you take away a pivotal moment, then you see what job does not get done because mm -hmm. the event did not take place. And as a result, how the behaviors might change in the undesired direction of change or just end up somewhere else, like Alice in Wonderland said before she went into the <laughs> rabbit hole. And, and if you remember, before Alice jumps into the rabbit hole after the rabbit, the rabbit actually pulls out his little clock watch, mm -hmm. his watch, and he looks at the watch. Do you remember that? Yep. I wonder why. <laughs> it's all the design of time. So yeah. one of the things that we really believe in is that if you're able to design time or if you're able to get a team to think about how to spend the time most effectively of a group of people. And as you experienced before, it's much easier to suspend disbelief as a group of people than to do it as an individual. It's much easier to be daring if you're together than if you're alone. So that's one of the natural mechanisms you use as, as humanity to create change. But we have to do it in the desired direction of change and not in any direction or in an unpredictable direction because it's a two-edged sword. So the subtitle of the book called Design to Change is elevating your abilities to look and act beyond the now. So if you're designing in the moment, you're trying to look and act beyond where you currently are to anchor something towards the overarching aim of where you're headed, what you're intending to do, and then allowing people to um, design prototypes to move closer to that specific future overarching aim. So basically, we are talking about changes that take more than one person. That's why you say yeah, that and, and there will be some sort of a gathering or an event. But now I also understand that those events, they don't have to be as big necessarily that you would need your first book. In a sense, that could be just three of us talking over coffee and finally pulling that trigger that we were so hesitant to pull for, uh, I don't know, months, right? Yeah, and technically what we're doing now is having an event, right? Mm -hmm. There's at least two stakeholders that we know of, or in this case, there's three of us, but you have the stake of producing the podcast, I am the guest on the podcast, and we may or may not have people listening to the podcast who could be doing this asynchronously because it's not being sent out live. Mm -hmm. 
And this could perpetuate over time. So you have at least three different stakeholders. So our definition of an event is super simple. It's any gathering of two or more stakeholders. And lately we've added that change their behavior. It might not even be in the desired direction of change, but it just <laughs> could be just some kind of behavior change. So that's our definition of an event. So it's very open and wide. It has very little to do with some examples we use of going to the circus, because we like to use the circus tent as our little visual of remembering as a kid going to a circus and seeing the anticipation before you come in and buying the ticket or hearing that the circus is coming to town and then you know, going into the circus with friends or parents or family, whatever it might be. And then walking out the other end in and the state of wonder has been resolved or amplified or whatever it might be as a result of what you did inside that tent. And then you could look at life as a series of events strung together by white spaces. And then you could decode what has happened in the past and potentially create what could happen in the future. Speaking of white space between the nodes. This is also something that we've discussed before we started recording. And this is your musical interests and the unusual instrument that you are playing. Would you tell us a bit more about it? So I think it's really important to regularly do things that you've never done before. Well, I changed my behavior that I stopped making music about 10 years ago when I moved to Switzerland, 11 years ago, unknowingly. It wasn't necessarily in the desired direction of change. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, if you're talking about daring and beliefs, and my belief was that having moved to a new place, I would be probably unable to find a similar group of people that like the same kind of music that I do, that could put up with my travel schedule and welcome me in that context in the way that I had known before by playing in a quintet at Amsterdam, making jazz music with people that have been doing that with since student days. Mm -hmm. So that was one belief. And then seven years into that, maybe that's a seven year cycle, who knows? <laughs> I did find a fascination in hearing the Alphorn, which is a very Swiss traditional instrument. And by the way, the Austrians and Germans might claim that it's also their traditional instrument. I have no idea who came up with it first, but it's basically the very first mobile phone that ever existed without a battery, right? Because somebody on the top of a mountain took a log of three meters and 20 long, carved it out into a tube that concentrically goes wider towards the, the twist of where the tree grew on the mountain at 1600 meters. The tree had to have rested for at least 16 years to dry out properly to become that instrument. Wow. And it's a manual labor of love to make one of these things, right? So it, it takes an, about 80 hours to 100 hours to make one of these things. Wow. So you can't just get one. You actually have to, the guy has to do you a favor to sell you one of these things. Mm. But long story short, the Alphorn is a very simple instrument that has 16 notes with natural resonances. It's an F sharp, which is a very unusual chromatic note to start your scale on. And... The interesting thing about that instrument is that you have to be able to feel the resonance in your body or in your head. You have to be able to picture what the note sounds like before you can actually produce it. Hmm. So you have to program your head space. You have to future cast. That's the tone that's going to come out on the other end. And then you've got to put together the right tension and air to produce that note. And I think that's what fascinates me about the instrument is one is its natural resonance because every note is the half 
frequency of the previous notes, which means on the bottom you have very few notes and on the top you have almost like a normal scale. But producing those 16 notes is extremely challenging and difficult. The sound of this instrument travels up to 10 kilometers, depending on weather circumstances. But this was used to call down to the villages to say, I ran out of beer or, you know, a cow is sick or the cheese is ready or whatever. There were songs for every type of communication that you would need to do uh, without having to run down the mountain and come back up. The instrument was kind of the lazy man's way or lazy woman's way of communicating down to the village what it is that they required. Yeah. Anyway, so that's what I found fascinating. And so I ran into a couple of people that do the same thing. And it's a whole cult here in Switzerland. I just spent a week with my dad. I invited my dad to join me in Arosa for a week. And we got to make music together. Mm. So the one instrument brings people together with a common care. Who, you know, there's not that many people, you know, across the planet that do this. But I find that fascinating. Which songs are you playing? The cheese song or the beer song? <laughs> <laughs> the wine song. Sorry. Yeah, the wine song, yeah. <laughs> That's the French influence, right? <laughs> I want all of those, but then in a certain order and sequence. <laughs> no, but what's fascinating, just today, that uh, I can go on forever on this, but in, in the book you will find some visuals which I think are very meaningful, in which we talk about frequency amplitude, cadence, and resonance, mm. because I think they very much apply to the way that people think about events that happen and how they either build on each other or detract from each other, how the level of frequency and amplitude of the change that you're designing for influences the frequency of the events or the interaction you need to design the event. So it correlates very nicely as a language or as a, as a sequence of understanding which is as old as the roads to Rome, right? I guess music has been made since now and forever. Mm. Yeah. Events have taken place since now and forever, but mm. decoding them hasn't been necessarily as quick as creating it. Like you said, your book is about change. And of course, yeah. everybody talks about change now. And especially with the pandemic, people say things have to change and so on and so forth. And change is not very easy for humans. We are not as adapted to change and not as willing to change as we all would wish to think. Mm. So my question, which is a bit of a provocation, is like, is change always the best way? No, I think change is an outcome. It's never a purpose. And nobody wants it. So it's not a desirable something. So calling our book Designed to Change is probably a kamikaze title when you're talking about, is this something people really want? But we also know that transformations don't happen because people have merely positive experiences strung together. Sometimes conversations can be quite difficult. So we open our book with a little visual and a one-liner. And the one-liner is, a good conversation can shift the direction of change forever. Would you leave it to chance? Mm -hmm. And I think this is where Let's say, if you become the subject of change, that's very painful, but you want to be the leader of change or you want to be creating what is next before it happens to you. And so being proactive in the ability to explore the question before coming up with the answers is probably the core thing that you want to do. And then translate it into very tangible things. People love tangible stuff, right? Not the blah, blah about change and change management, but that's very tiring. All of us that have read books about that, you could probably 
create a tsunami of books around that subject. It already exists. <laughs> They're already all there, right? That's not the problem. <laughs> what we really try to focus on, and it's well articulated by Joel Letang, who was the one responsible at Wikimedia Foundation to kind of now have to create this event after 15 editions. And when you're in your 15th edition, you are a bit like a teenager, right? You're <laughs> turning 16 or 17 because you skipped a birthday. Um, and you have to figure out what all of your friends want and what your parents want and what your neighbors want, don't want. And, you know, got, like, when you create that event, it's a pretty daunting task. And he kind of calls it, you know, where events are markers of change, event design enables us to track the past, organize the present and design for the future. So I think what makes people very uncomfortable is the not knowing part. If things become opaque, if you don't see what's next, it's like driving a car in the mist, right? It's, it's very uncomfortable. Add some mountains on top of it and maybe some disease. And, you know, then you're, you're pretty much where we were last year in March. Until those that designed for the future decided to wrap their heads around the problem and crack the code on a vaccine and figure out how to distribute that across the planet and others to, you know, regulate in the meantime how things are being done. But it was all very in the moment conversations to deal with what's up next, right? It's like looking one meter forward instead of <laughs> focusing on climate change and all the other important stuff that's coming our way. I think this was just a practice run for what's to come. Nature's small trigger to shake us and not just gently, like that revolver sitting in your side, Lukash, on your trip in Madagascar. <laughs> oh, you remember that. Only too. later when you <laughs> only later when you know what it was, can you get worried, right? Yeah. <laughs> Let me decode how you approach this subject. So what you're saying is we would like to have certain outcomes that we don't have yet. Mm -hmm. It's our ends. And the means to that, to get these outcomes, is change. And the means to change, one of the means to change are the events that's punctuated. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, the change is not the outcome. So we're, we're headed somewhere where we want to be. It still may be quite a vague picture. But ultimately, that's what the outcome-driven persons in an organization are responsible for, mm -hmm. right? Or in a community or whatever it might be. If they can articulate that more or less clearly, it helps the other people figure out what those that have a stake in that might be able to do together to get there quicker or faster or better mm -hmm. or whatever it might be. If you know what the future kind of state is, and you would almost dream up like, how would we celebrate when we reach that point? What would that event look like? Because once you know what that looks like, you can decode, oh, it's going to take us maybe five iterations to get there because there's only so much change we can deal with at once. And then you can break down that big gap of change into smaller increments of change. And those become much more overseeable mm -hmm. to design for. But the big daunting goal is for the outcome-driven person is that you are able to imagine what it's like when you get there, to visualize that picture to understand what it means for the different stakeholders involved in that situation, decoding those behaviors from entry to exit, and then seeing the delta. And if you see what it needs to be, then you can decode how you might be able to influence people to do those little things. When you are talking about it, I kind of keep on thinking about something that uh, I understood when I was writing the one strategy about experience, that experience always is. And now you have to name it. You have to 
understand what sort of experience you want to deliver in order to be able to deliver. So what you are saying is that we are in the constant process of change. And now this, this change can be random or it can be focused if we understand what the focus should be. Yeah, and on top of that, there's something that we make it more tangible with, and that's what we call the horizons of change, because the horizon keeps changing. Or let's say when you get closer to the horizon, the horizon technically moves <laughs> up, but yeah. if, only if you stop and look at it again, will you see where it then is. So any object that approaches the horizon from the observer side seems to slow down, right, when you get to that horizon. That's not actually true. If you would ask Stephen Hawkins on the horizons of change, that's what happens before you dive into the black hole, which is probably the worst kind of rabbit hole you could end up in. Because <laughs> <laughs> then you end up in infinity and you never know what's going to happen, right? Mm. Um, so it's about horizons of change, being conscious of them, talking about them and having conversations about them. And also not worrying too much about what's beyond the horizon and what are the next horizons after that. You'll see that when you get there. That's fine. Being okay with that is super cool. But you have to have something that's beyond the horizon that you aspire to, whether it's a community, an organization, or a couple, or whatever it is, right? Any type of thing that involves multiple human beings, it's good to have a sense of purpose. <laughs> Actually, when you were saying this, it kind of got me back to something that you said before, which is that it's easier to stop than start. This is something, what you said when you were talking about uh, playing music. And with change is the same. So the purpose gives you the reason to start things rather than mm. to keep on stopping things, right? Yeah. And there needs to be a balance when we apply event design. Mm -hmm. One of the classic syndromes is people just pile on new stuff and want to keep all the old stuff too. <laughs> That's when event programs become overstuffed and undigestible. Uh, because at the end of the day, the event is just a sequence amount of time by a number of people that go to that. And that's what we call the total event time. And in relation to total event time, you have some, you know, design time that you need to design that time so those people use that time effectively. It's a very logical sequence. One of the gifts that this pandemic has given us is this kind of dystopian obligation to stop doing all sorts of stuff that we were all doing very radically. So it's like pulling the handbrake and pressing on the brake at the same time while switching off the engine going at 250 kilometers an hour. That's what happened to us. Our nose got stuck on the windshield <laughs> of our iPads and our phones and our computers, not being able to cross that threshold and get out of the car. And we didn't have an airbag. At least mm -hmm. most of us didn't, right? Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, like you say, we've had to stop doing a whole bunch of things because they were getting dangerous for us. And because there was now space to think about the opportunity cost of what we were doing versus what we can now do, We had this full reset from the left part of the pendulum to the right part of the pendulum. And now we're slowly going to oscillate it again from left to right or, you know, figure out what the right cadence is of doing certain things and going back to some of these habits that we might have had. But if you study how long it takes for us to develop new habits, 14 months is not a, it's not a bad time, right? <laughs> 14 months is a little bit more than 10,000 hours which some people believe is the threshold of being able to learn something new at depth. So unless you've been sleeping a lot, you know, you could have learned in the last 14 months how to do things differently. Yeah. What you could say is very clearly now, both big and small companies have problems getting people back to the office. 
I mean, I yeah. see a huge resistance. Like recently, I think Facebook and Google, they postponed this program for another month. Yeah. I guess not to antagonize their people too much. And some companies turned around and said, the concept of an office no longer exists and mm -hmm. we're just going to forget about what we knew about that and reconfigure what it is. So there's a recent MIT Sloan research paper that identifies going to the office as an event. We should look at that as an event. Maybe it's, it has a sense and purpose to go to the office and not because we had to, because we could not talk to each other. We needed to be in proximity to be in contact with other people in order to do stuff. And then I think some change can be done in the 2D environment of being behind screens and some has to be in the 3D environment, right? Babies cannot get made through the computer. <laughs> At least not yet. <laughs> At least not yet. <laughs> well, yeah, that's, that might be the next thing. Right? But, uh, as far as I know. <laughs> yeah, but actually, at least from what we observe, there is a bunch of people who would love to go to the old ways. And this is a bit of a conundrum for me because my belief is that the old ways don't exist anymore. They are just gone and made obsolete. Mm -hmm. But there is a drive to make things be how they used to be. So this is the reverse of change. How do you see that? Well, one of the problems is that the financial infrastructure and the hardware infrastructure that is in existence, it hasn't gone away. So there's, there's motive for quite a number of businesses or organizations to, to make sure that that remains purposeful and has a use, right? <laughs> If you've closed a lease for 30 years on an office building or just built a new one and you invested in it, unless you know how it's differently going to be used than office space, of course, you're going to put change into action to justify the fact that an office is the critical thing to have. And I think it's only a natural balance. Right? I think progress comes slowly. I've experienced that living in Switzerland. But if you do it slowly and consciously, it can deliver quality. Right. So I think what we've gone through is it is literally that jerk from left to right in terms of where we were, which people have a hard time dealing with. And it's a, it's an eye opening situation. And the easiest for some people is to go back to that old way, but it's just not possible. Because of the example you gave Lukash, which is people now know what's different, have experienced what it's like for an extended period of time. But I've also seen the difference between different people. If you live in a city on the fourth floor in the back with no garden and four small kids in a three-room apartment, then you were not in a luxury yacht, but in a dinghy boat, right? If we were all in the same boat. But if you have a garden, can live outside and have a very different kind of situation, and you have a stable internet connection, which half of the world doesn't have, then obviously you know a different truth. And I think this is where we become, we should become much more aware of those differences. And as a result, better able to design how we change some of those things. Yeah, I also noticed that perception of certain aspects of life changed. So like in Warsaw, before the pandemic, if you had the commute shorter than, say, 90 minutes, you wouldn't complain about it even. I mean, you would be laughed at because someone had 90 plus minutes, right? Yeah. It was a normal thing to do every day. But now after these 14 months or 10,000 hours or whatever, people start questioning it maybe it's not normal, maybe it's not my private time added to my working hours. So as you say, a change of perspective, 
which was there because people were complaining about this, but now they noticed it could be different. And I think this is like one of those eye-opening moments that you can't unsee anymore. Let me challenge that, Lukash, because the presumption is that travel time is intrusive into the private space of somebody's free time. Let's take as an assumption for a moment something that Paul Wilkins keeps telling us, which is mind-boggling and I keep practicing it, but it's so difficult. And he says that the purpose of thinking is to stop thinking. If you have a commute of 90 minutes and you probably go in automatic mode from the moment that your alarm goes off, you have kind of a zombie-like behavior of brushing your teeth, you know, getting your breakfast, walking across the street to the metro station, whatever. All those rituals become a ritualized way of operating an autopilot. And the autopilot gives you time to think. What if I take that away? Because if the purpose of thinking is to stop thinking and you do the best thinking when you're in autopilot mode, if I keep shutting off your autopilot, how can you still think? We didn't say what you replace this commute with, right? This is like the the real answer to your question. Because if you go for a walk at the time, it's also pretty much autopilot, but it's a very different way of being. Spending the time. Exactly. My best ideas come to me before waking up and getting out of bed. I have a commute, have to probably shorten this time or sleep shorter. So as long as you listen to this podcast and give it a thought, (laughs) it can be designed around, right? Exactly. So I I do some of my best thinking in a hammock between two trees, just looking up at the sky, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes the only risk I have is an apple falling on my head in this season. (laughs) Newton did this and we are better for it. So it's all his fault. (laughs) There's a fresh apple. Um, And I think I get to spend more time in the hammock this past year and a half than I have ever before. But also I used to get a lot of really good ideas when I was traveling. Mm -hmm. Because I move myself to a different place. I change my context. I cannot run my autopilot. So every truth has an opposite truth, right? So the fact that your autopilot is on doesn't mean that you're thinking. But what I'm trying to get at is that I think all the things we do have a function and a purpose, and you just need to figure them out, what they mean. Sometimes they also have a palate cleansing function, kind of like the sorbet between your first course and the main course. You need to reset your system in order to then taste the next thing, for instance. Mm -hmm. Or... You keep the white wine glass to have red wine because the wine has gotten used to the wine and you're not having glass on wine for the second wine coming into the same glass. I I think all of these have an argumentation for and con, but it's consciously thinking about it that's so important and understanding why this is relevant or not. And it's relativity. Like in Warsaw, 90 minutes might be an okay commute time. Here in Switzerland, we'd say if you're commuting longer than 20 minutes, you live in the wrong place, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) <laughs> um, so it's it's question of context. And, you know, if you live in uh, in Manila, Philippines, and you, you get a commute of two hours, then you've won the jackpot, right? Then you're in fantastic shape. Yep. I think that relativity is something that we can also now much better assess. What's difficult for people is, like, switching one meeting to the next meeting without a break or, you know, having to switch gears very quickly, which is what we've called now the digital dexterity. Like, the ability to to radically go from different activities in a split second in the same context. That's a new skill we have to develop. Yeah, in the office, probably at least change the meeting room or something like this. So you do have these little gaps. Yeah. And here you just, you know. Click next, on next another button. link. Yeah. yeah. 
And this is a behavior we just have to get used to as well. We have to program that differently and we have to deal with what people can deal with. But that needs to be designed for. You cannot break the basic human need that if you drink three glasses of water, you will eventually will have to go to the bathroom. (laughs) And I think they're very basic things that, like when we talk about event design, sometimes it gets that pragmatic. You really have to be super pragmatic about the abilities for people to do certain things and then how you order and sequence them and then what you expect as a reaction from different perspectives of that picture, of that thing. Coming back to this time for thinking, so in order to think, you have to stop thinking Hmm. or you need to stop thinking. And what you said about the autopilot, what you're saying is that we need to claim time for thinking about change and then claim time for change because this is another challenge that happens when someone starts talking about the change management and stuff like this that somehow there's this impression that one day we did something and the other day we are going to do it in a very different way and there's no transition transition time that, that allows for people to find new ways that get them out of the old ways and therefore I think that so many people, especially in the more professional context, are freaked out when they hear about yet another change management program, because that means that suddenly they have to relearn everything on the top of the fact that they have to do their job in the first place. Mm. Yeah, and that's where change and management are two words that are very incompatible with each other, I think. (laughs) I think that's a contamination that's probably causing all the stress. If the design of time is at the core of what you do, that's what you're worried about, right? How do you spend people's time? How do people value that? And how do you allocate it properly? That's the core question. And change being an outcome is not necessarily, it's just a descriptor of a delta. That's all it is. It's a very bad descriptor of delta that should be way more specific. And that's why it freaks people out. Because when you say change, from what to what? If you would say, we're here right now, right? And that's where we'd like to be. And in order to get to that place, here's all the things that we need to alter from A to B. I think people would have a much easier time dealing with that. But it's much harder for the person articulating it to be that specific. So this gets me to another rabbit hole, which is, is the working time of eight hours something that makes any sense whatsoever these days anymore? So my perspective on this is if if you go back to some of the most basic functions or jobs that there are on the planet, like farming or something that's very organic, close to nature or whatever it might be. And then you take the opposite truth of some of the most inorganic types of jobs that exist on the planet, like firefighting. Right? Or I don't know, something that's caused by humans. I wanted to say office job. <laughs> or, or an office job or whatever it might be. But so, yes, I like the comfort of knowing that if my house goes on fire at whatever time of the day, that there is a crew of people ready to take on that challenge fairly quickly. That requires planning and systematic approaches to making sure you have coverage and the right amount of people for the amounts of hours in the day, for the amount of houses and factories there are in that specific place or or nature. 
the cow is not going to wait to give its milk just because it decides to sleep at night and eat during the day. And, and I think that natural circadian rhythm of production is what drives our original behaviors. So it's all about understanding and decoding what it is we're trying to do and then allocating when the right time is to do that. And I think we all know that instinctively. That's not the problem. But mm -hmm. the problem is we've started scaling something that's not necessarily scalable and we just applied the same model to a lot of the things just because we couldn't think or we couldn't take the time to be bothered to come up with a better model. Mm. And I think, you know, the pandemic has given us the time at least to think about a potentially better model. And if the leaders or managers haven't taken the time to think about it, then the worker bees will have taken time to think of it. And at the end of the day, you can be as much queen bee as you like, but it's the workers bee that are going to determine how the beehive will create the honey, right? <laughs> and I think this is what's super interesting right now. I mean, there's so much power in how people deliver their own behaviors and power structures are being challenged very specifically. And it's also very risky because, yeah, there's a lot to lose for some but a lot to gain for others. And so I think now is not a bad time to, to ruffle the feathers and, and to, uh, <laughs> <laughs> to redesign that in a way that is much more sustainable or much more pleasurable or much more reasonable for whatever role it might be. I'm a firm believer that work is not a place you go, it's a thing you do. And you do it when you're most inclined to do it or when it works best for that individual. But we also know that the questions from people that need what we do don't always come at the appropriate time. So one of our things that we say is we design at the speed of change, which means that if you want change right now, or if you want to design right now, I don't want to keep you waiting for four hours to tap into your moment of epiphany that you want this. But you can plan that. You know, If you have people in Toronto and in Europe and in Asia, and they all live on a different time zone, and you can cover in a natural way by reorganizing how you do things can be done fairly easily. The internet so far hasn't switched off yet. It just keeps going. So those people can be reached if you have access to that. And um, I know our friends at the Internet Society are working on the interplanetary internet. So if soon you're going to be traveling to another planet, you will have it there too. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of change as something that lasts over time and space. One of the big challenges for a lot of organizations is to stick with change. We've seen several times that uh, companies would uh, go into a transformation process, claim the success, and that was the moment when the transformation would basically die a very quick death. And I'm curious, how do you approach the topic of sticking to change and also reflecting on the change that's happening and maybe changing the course because obviously like you said with approaching one horizon you you see things with different eyes you know more basically and you are able to better assess what things were right and what were wrong i'm curious whether you dig into this and you try to help your readers to deal with sustaining change rather than just starting change and I think this is about committing to the cadence, right? So scaling what you're doing, but also committing to A, finding the cadence and B, then tweaking it or changing it slightly. What I've learned from the Alphorn is you cannot tweak the harmonics. Well, you can do it once when you build the instrument, but after that, you're screwed. You're stuck with that thing. 
And I also know that the F on that instrument is always way too sharp. It's always between an F and a G, so it's an unnatural tone. But if all the instruments have that default, because that's how trees grow, then we've got to be okay with that. It just means that all the other instruments we've created, the pianos, the flutes, the harps, they're basically not in tune with nature. I think tuning in with natural cadence, and sometimes it means going through a painful something for a while. But if you keep that up, you can change the habits. And one big advantage we have right now is that one thing we're really poor at is observing behavior. We should all become much better at observing behavior, especially our own. We have a gift. The gift is called the camera and the gift is called the microphone and it can record our every move. And if you don't know what your behavior was, then just listen to the podcast from episode one. You see the Delta, right? That's how you started. How many years back was that? About three years. Three? Three yeah, years, yeah. right? So you've created your own mental model of a pivotal moment. You've actually anchored it in your episodes. The episodes are visible on Spotify or on SoundCloud or whatever you might be listening to. And those are automatic markers of change, which allow you to look back at the gaps. And if you're uninspired about maintaining the cadence, just look back and pretend to think, what if I got stuck there? <laughs> and I would be operating in the current environment being like I was there. That's scary. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Or at least it could be. And I think this is very inspiring. And, and I think this is what's so cool about designing time is that in hindsight, you have 2020 vision and you see perfection because you have markers. And we have more markers than ever. We have video, we have photos, we have audio, we have memories, we have all sorts of stuff. All we need to do is not forget about it and not rely just on Facebook for what happened four years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's one of the best functions of that is to remind me of my deltas. But implicitly, I think you're also saying that you shouldn't stop. I think it's unstoppable, actually. I think you can't stop it, even if you wanted to. But you can shape its future direction. That's our responsibility. But it's not going to stop. It's only going to go faster. Yeah, I'm just thinking about the case that Aga made about those companies declaring their transformation finished. It's not that they stop. They stopped consciously controlling the direction and they just kind of go on a freewheel mode, pretty much the same that was there before. If they would acknowledge that moment as a pivotal moment of celebration of the past Delta and articulate what the new Delta is that they're venturing on, then it's not half bad. Right? Mm -hmm. And actually many of the events are those types of events. But events that only celebrate the past but don't look into the future, Yeah, those could be scary. That's how you get war uh, started, right? Yeah. It started with a gun, but it ended in a conversation. It did. Why did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> All of this comes together to one aspect, which I think is quite crucial for any change to happen. And this is uh, your beliefs, your personal beliefs, your group beliefs, your company beliefs, your you know, national beliefs. And you said that it's easier to suspend this belief when we are in the group rather than when we are on our own. Often when groups come, beliefs are being reinforced. And at the same time, when groups come, they are able to 
imagine this new world. And this is in some ways a little bit contradictory, but I somehow think that understanding what drives your beliefs allows you to suspend this belief and to think about different options in much more creative and open-ended way. So are there ways to prompt people to get out of their often very narrow way of believing how the world is? Mm. And I'm I'm not saying narrow because I don't know someone is narrow-minded. I'm just saying that every single one of us is shaped by our culture, but our upgrowing. So whether we want it or not, we do have this bubble of beliefs that we live in. And basically the whole thing is that you need to stretch that bubble. So how do you make people stretch the bubble as much as they can without really popping it? What we try to do in our practice is suspend the disbelief just long enough for the design process of the team, but having the team articulate the beliefs of the various stakeholders through empathy, mm -hmm. right? So I'm not articulating what I want out of it, but I'm thinking on behalf of someone else. And if you would ask me for my beliefs and my biases, there's no way for me to do that in any form of accuracy, I think. Not unless you would hold something up in front of me and say, here's what we think you see and what you think and feel and what you hear and what you say and do and what your pains and gains are and what your jobs to be done are and what you need to commit to in the returns and all the stuff that we put on an event canvas. We pre-chew a story from our being usually a group of six, seven very different types of people in different age categories, different backgrounds, different cultures, as much as diverse as possible. Because if those people together create a story, you might have 80% truth or 60% truth or 87% truth. But it's not until the moment of reflection, if I hold up the mirror to that person and ask them to spot the 10 differences, that they become consciously aware of some of their beliefs. And might not be all of their beliefs, but at least some of them. Mm -hmm. Some of them that pertain to that situation of change with that entry and exit behavior in that pivotal future moment. It's in the specificity of the role of the belief in that situation that you can isolate maybe one or two of them. You can never capsule the whole thing. I don't think it's possible because it's situational. You know, I discovered on Wikimedia the wheel of biases. It's going to blow your mind. If you haven't seen it, look it up. I did, I did. It's like over a hundred of them, right? It's a beast, right? Yeah. <laughs> and it's super well visualized. But you could be in any of those rabbit holes or all of them at the same time. But it very much <laughs> depends on your situation, right? True. Is it me recording a podcast or is it me sitting on the back seat of my son, Olivier, taking his first driving lessons with my wife sitting next to him? And I have no way of reaching the handbrake. <laughs> those evoke a different set of beliefs or behaviors that you will never get to know all at once. So the only way of dealing with that is suspend the disbelief for just long enough to co-create a story of what it could be, hold it up against the person, see if in that context there's some sense to what that is, make the picture less fuzzy, it never becomes super clear, and then getting closer to the truth. Right? It's kind of like just had lunch with uh, Niels Forsberg, mm -hmm. who we know the College of Extraordinary Experiences in Copenhagen this weekend. And um, over lunch with Smurbrot, again, we talked about his formula for creativity. And he said, I cannot make people funny 
I can make them funnier. <laughs> Not like that. This is kind of what this is too, right? I cannot assess my beliefs, but I can dispel some of my beliefs or I can identify some of them a little bit more than I used to know before. This connects with another thing that you said, which is the moment of pain. Because often when you see the image in that mirror, you realize your beliefs. It's not a very pleasant experience. At least I can say it only from my own personal experience. It's usually like kind of making me think, oh my gosh, like how could I have believed in that or how could I have behaved that way or something like this? Mm. And at the same time, what I believe in, and I, I think that we already discussed this some other time, that you believe in the same thing, is that change or transition cannot happen without pain. It's much like the hero's journey, you have to die and be reborn in order for a change to truly take space and then stick. So I think that there is like this moment of realization of what has happened and then sticking with it. And funnily enough, recently in the summer of skill sharing that was done by Rob Fesh, and we analyzed three experiences and what made them transformational. This very thing came out, right? So. Mm actually talked about youth camp that I had when I was a teenager, being parachuted as the only foreigner in a group of 80 Filipinos playing Jupiter by Holston, my trumpet for six weeks. That thing is deeply anchored in my brain, right? I can still see every single note. That experience was phenomenal in hindsight, but being in the experience was pretty robustly rabbit hole experience, right? <laughs> It knocked some of my beliefs as a 14 year old right out of the park in such a great way that I think it was probably a very good transformational experience. And it actually becomes addictive because relearning something for the first time, especially when it pertains to music and something that's extremely difficult, is the kind of challenge I need to think. That's probably one of the reasons why now I'm playing the Alphorn. <laughs> <laughs> you basically have to have some masochistic attempts yeah, every now and then to, like, to bend your, I your to, beliefs. I need to discover that about myself. I need to try something in that area, right? <laughs> one of the reasons why Red Bull events do what they do. People push boundaries or go into zones that are uncomfortable because once you realize that that's how you grow yourself, If you stop doing those things, then you're being like that executive you were describing that announces the end of the transformation, ta-da, right? It's done, check. The only reason why they would do that is to claim their bonus or move on to the next role with some form of affinity and success claim. But it's all very selfish to proclaim yourself transformed. I think that's the powerful element of a transformation. The moment of not knowing and the moment of knowing that you didn't know <laughs> just long enough for you to search for understanding of decoding the gap between what you know and didn't know. Mm. And I think that's the exact decoding we try to do with events as well. But then it's a stacked series of experiences from multiple people from different stakeholder perspectives. So it's an extremely complex thing because it's changing context with different groups of people who interact only once. And that's why people find them so difficult. And we love them to pieces because they're super fun to decode. It's like taking a giant puzzle and not having the picture of what it should look like when it's finished. <laughs> <laughs> so in a way, we started this conversation by disputing whether the process or the outcome are more important, really. What I'm understanding from everything that you said in the last hour is that both are 
very crucial to actually get you not only envisioning, but also going in that direction. In the book, there's a chapter that's called process or outcome mm -hmm. or both. You might have a preference or you might have a disposition of what your sweet spot is, but you need both for it to work. And that's exactly like you were saying. I think people, especially groups of people that are in dissonance or might not have full harmony about an understanding of a situation, a process can be extremely helpful to get them through that moment of tumbleweed systematically. And then walking out with something predictable of what it is, more like the outcome of the process is roughly that, right? And here's an example of what that is for others. And for yours, we don't know what the outcome will be yet, but that will come out. Because it's been repeated so many times, you know that that is what it does. The one that wants the outcome cannot have it until you've gone through the process, right? Because <laughs> it's not a problem-solution fit. It's not an engineering solution. It's yeah. a designer's mindset of excavating the problem, not falling in love with the solution, but really digging into the question. And then when you have those things, you realize that it takes both process and outcome go hand in hand, but there's an order and sequence to them. So um, the answer is 42. <laughs> as usual. <laughs> as usual. <laughs> well, not as usual, all the time. All the time. <laughs> but what was the question? <laughs> a little bit on a side note, I've listened to uh, an interview with Elon Musk. And apparently, I was not aware of this, Douglas Adams' tweak on, you know, you know, the answer, we don't know what the question is. It's apparently uh, quite an old school of thought. And uh, when they asked Elon, why does he want to go to Mars? And basically he says that by exploring the universe, you get to ask the questions, not find the answers. So universe is the answer, but to what questions? That's the exploration of it. So like, it looks like a simple feedback, but when I thought about it, I said, Geez, that's really powerful. That, that's a really interesting take on it. So I wonder what his take is on the event horizon in the astrophysics sense of the word, where it's the boundary of where you hit the black hole, right? It's yeah. like beyond the universe place where time disappears. Well, last month, we as humanity, we have picked up a first signal from the other end of the black hole. So it disputes the existence of a event horizon at all? Well, no. <laughs> no, it's basically... That's why I went into this article a little bit, at least to see that do we now suspend the belief in the very fundamental law of physics, right? But the answer is no. There's basically a pulsation on both ends. Yeah. And what I understood, the pulsation on the other hand, it modulates what we see on ours. So it's kind of different channel the way I reconciled it in my head. So it's basically an induction. Really cool. Absolutely. Anyway. Cool. So the kind of event horizons we talk about here have nothing to do with astrophysics. They're, they're very close to the... It's like when I look out the window here, I see a horizon, right? So yeah. and very often I try to bring it back to that when we talk about event design, because it, it really isn't rocket science. It's super simple. But simple is never easy when you have different perspectives. And I think that's what the learnings are from this book, is that it requires different perspectives to have good conversations. Mm -hmm. If everybody's in perfect alignment with each other and it's all kumbaya, the conversation's usually not that exciting. Not at all. Right? So <laughs> controversy, debate, 
required ingredients to explore the edges because that's where the innovation happened. It doesn't happen in the middle. By the way, speaking of that, with one of uh, my clients, we ran the first for them experience sprint, which yeah. where you start with the strategy of experience and then you design the experience and then you turn it into a, an action plan. It was supposed to be five days, but we had to squeeze it into four days. Wednesday, Thursday and Friday was all the design things and testing things. And uh, it was all super mellow and super nice. And people agreed with each other. We came on Monday to make an action plan. And I was laughing that it was like an ongoing Italian family argument. So basically screaming and... Uh, <laughs> yeah, disagreeing. Oh my gosh. It was actually quite funny to observe. Was it because before that it was kind of an, a little bit abstract for them? And that was the first reality check. We do this and we don't do that? Yes, absolutely. Right. And then suddenly, because it was still in a very early design stage, people who were not designers, they didn't know how it's going to be transposed into a final solution. Anyway... As I was going through this day and it was extremely exhausting and I kind of asked the team to keep that atmosphere really nice. So like, you know, joyful and funny. And what, even if we had an argument, we would kind of laugh at it, you know, we just kind of keep it cool. Right. Uh, <laughs> I was really thinking that having this change happening in a moment is such a crazed thing for a lot of people and that suddenly knowing that things are going to be different and we have to put effort into this and it's going to cost us it is like a rabbit hole that opens up and you're standing there and you're you know still like kind of wobbling at the edge of it and, and you were the branch that broke and, and, yeah, exactly <laughs> or we were the rabbit that just pushes you into the you hole. don't look at their watch you just grab them and pull them in yeah. from the mean exactly so it was such a cool feeling to see this and also observe myself being the person who had to be the rabbit <laughs> to push everybody into a hole speaking of each you ran the certified program for event designers already several, several times. We're actually having a meeting with our 33rd cohort. Wow, congratulations. <laughs> what are the biggest rabbit holes that your event designers are falling into? Apart from the fact that they are so crazed about the process that they forget about the outcomes. Apart from that one, because that's the mm -hmm. biggest one, yeah. I would say. I think the other one is how incredibly easy we make it look or it is to do that with people you don't know versus then bringing it to a group of people that you do know quite well or think to know quite well, right? So doing something with a group of perfect strangers versus doing it with a group of colleagues or confidants or friends or volunteer leaders that you've been working with for a long time. And then having a facilitating role, not contributing, but just being the orchestrator of the experience so the others provide the input and not getting in the way. Mm. That's probably the second rabbit hole that most people run into, but they're sequential. So the first rabbit hole is being able to get permission to design. Um, and what's funny is a lot of the event owners have told us that claiming event design time is not really the issue. Their issue is being the event owner of an event that wastes people's time. That's their biggest nightmare. Can right? imagine so that, yeah. There's a kind of a, a conflict of perception as to what really the problem is, right? We think it's this, you know, claiming the design time and getting it on the agenda. But the biggest pain for the outcome-driven event owner is not the design process, but it's the outcome of the event that will not deliver what it's supposed to do. Yep. Yep. And I think that's the good news from our experiences. 
And we discovered that through our conversations in a podcast that we run called Design to Change, which is all about having those conversations from the perspective of a designer and the perspective of the outcome owner, of the event owner or the business owner, whatever it might be, and asking them and having that conversation and getting it out in the open. So it's like permanent field research in the application of something that creates, you know, what you need to know next. Dude, once again, congratulations on the new book. And uh, I'm sure that much like the event design handbook will be super popular and you will make it into a very powerful tool for a lot of people around the world. Thank you for having the time for us to have this conversation and jump into some of those rabbit holes with us. And we hope to reconnect with you in a 3D form real soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Catching the Next Wave podcast. We would love to hear from you on Twitter at Malka6 and at DLS6. You can find more details on www.catchingthenextwavepodcast.com. I'll send you a happy birthday version because I think you deserve that with your 10th anniversary of the <laughs> Catching the Next Wave. <laughs>